good to see you guys. That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. How do we become the people that God created us to be? You know, a few years ago, a lot of years ago, when I was in seminary, I remember taking some classes on pastoral counseling. Now, right now, some of you are thinking that have been to me for counseling. Wow, you must have slept through those classes. Because again, I'm not a very good counselor. But I do remember something that one of my professors said. He said one of the primary causes of conflict in marriages comes from arguments over the division of labor. And I'm like, what does a governmental agency have to do, you know, with arguments in marriage? Because that's what the division of labor sounds like to me. But then he went on to describe that when he talked about the division of labor, he was talking about in a marriage marriage relationship, who's responsible for what? For example, if the trash isn't taken out or if the dishes go unwashed, if the floor doesn't get vacuumed, who's responsible. Now, Laura and I, we're approaching 39 years of marriage. We got married at 22 and 19. We were young enough where we weren't really set in our way. So this wasn't a big deal for us. We figured out this division of labor thing early on. I thought I would pass it on to you because if you struggle in your marriage relationship, this may help you. Uh, So this is how we landed on it. If it takes place outside the house, okay, that's my responsibility, okay? If it takes place inside the house, that's my responsibility. If the dishwasher needs to be emptied, if the laundry needs to be done, if the floors need to be vacuumed, if the bed needs to be made, if we need to do some dusting or even change the batteries in the smoke detector, that's my responsibility. And I know what some of you are thinking, wow, seems like Laura got off easy. What's her responsibility? Really simple, look sexy 24 seven. That's all it takes right there. Now, don't send me any emails, lady. I'm just, ladies, I'm just kidding. We, we kind of figured out this division of labor thing and it works for us, but It's amazing how many married couples never figure this out. Now, I mentioned this division of labor because this weekend, we're beginning a a brand new series about how God actually changes and transforms our life. If you've been around church for a while, you would refer to this as how does God spiritually transform us? Let me tell you why this is so important. You see, I'm convinced that many Christians fall into the trap of thinking that salvation simply means, hey, I get to go to heaven when I die. It's kind of like fire insurance. It's going to keep me from going to hell. But you got to realize salvation is so much more than that. Salvation is the offer of life in God's kingdom right here, right now, as well as after we die. It's the promise that we can be the person that God created us to be, that he gave his son to die so that we could be. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven. We can experience right now what God planned for us. And I'll say more about this next week, but Paul wrote a little letter to the church at Rome that eventually made its way into the Bible. It's known as the book of Romans. And he talked about it this way in Romans chapter eight, verse 29. He said basically this, at the moment of salvation, in other words, when we accept Jesus Christ as our savior, the payment for our sins so we could be reconciled back into God. Philippians chapter one, verse six says, at that moment, God took each of us on as a project. And Romans eight twenty nine says that the goal of God's project in each of our lives, think about this, is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just ask you, how many have gotten there yet? I mean, you're like me and Jesus, we are just alike. See, that's not gonna happen yet, right? But we're going to talk about in this series, how do we get there and whose responsibility is it? I mean, if I'm going to be like Jesus, if my character is going to be conformed to the very character of Jesus Christ, who's responsible for that happening? Now, some of you who've been around church for a while, you would hold solely to the position that it's God's job. And you even have some verses that you would quote to defend your position. For example, you may quote 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. There's a good church word. Sanctify you through and through. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 
And so you point at that verse and say, Mike, there's the evidence right there. This is God's job. If I'm going to be like Jesus, this is his problem, right? But then some of us who've been around church for a while, we take more of the marine approach to our spiritual growth and transformation. And your response is, it's my job and I'm going to make sure that it is going to happen. And you'll quote verses like, say, Leviticus 11:44, where it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, which simply means set yourself apart for God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. God says, you be holy for I am holy. And so you'll look at that and say, see, it's God's job to make sure that he's holy. Mike, it's my job to make sure that I'm holy. And since it's my job, I got to try harder. I got to run faster. I got to pray more. I got to serve more. I got to give more. It's all about my responsibility. So whose job is it? I mean, if I'm going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, is it God's job? Is it my job? Is it a partnership? That's what we're going to be talking about in this series. Now, one of my greatest challenges, let me just say this as I get started. Speaking at a church like Hope every weekend is that a whole lot of people don't want to be here. And I realize that. In fact, I conducted an exit poll. About 98% of you would fall into that category. You really don't want to be here, okay? And of those 98%, I could basically break you down into three groups. Group number one would be those of you who don't like church because every time you attend, you're reminded of how you're doing everything wrong. And who wants to get up early on a Sunday, get all dressed up, you know, come to Six Flags Over Jesus, you know, fight all this traffic just to get in here and be reminded that you're doing life all wrong, that you're basically just ticking God off, right? And I don't, I mean, we don't mean to make you feel that way, but we probably do. And I apologize for that. But for that very reason, like where do I want to go somewhere where I'm just reminded that I'm getting it all wrong? I'm doing life all wrong. So you don't really want to be here. Group number two would be those of you who don't like church because you kind of feel like you got it all together. I mean, you don't need to be here. You're just kind of here to bless us with your presence, right? I mean, you'd be the first one to admit, hey, I'm no Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, but you're pretty sure you're not as bad as most people. So you're just kind of making your way through life. You're doing the best you can. You feel good about the fact that you're at least average, you know? And as long as God grades on a curve, you know, he accepts the A, B, and C people, and he only flunks and, 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 and doesn't accept the DNF people, you think you're probably okay. So in your mind, like, I don't really need to be here. I don't need church. Group number three would be those of you who've been following Jesus for a long time. But you don't really like coming to church because every time you come, you just feel uncomfortable because you feel alienated from God. Maybe it's because of something in your past. Maybe it's because of a habit that you can't stop and you don't know what to do with it. Or maybe, maybe you don't want to do anything about it, right? And because of that, you show up on the weekend and you're like, man, God, I'm sitting in your church and I'm on your naughty list. So you're uncomfortable. You feel guilty. You don't want to be here. But let me tell you something. If Jesus was standing here right now, this is what he would say to all of us who fall into one of those three categories. This is what he would say. He'd say, you know what, Mike? You know what, Bill? You know what, Sarah? This is the problem with religion. Because Jesus would say, religion just muddies up the relationship that I designed for me and you to have together. By the way, what is religion? Let me give you a definition for religion. Religion is our attempt to work our way into a relationship with God. It's our attempt, our efforts, all that we can do to be in a relationship with God. You see, religion tells me that if I can be a good person, if I can live by most of the rules, at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, me and God, we're gonna be okay. Here's the problem with that logic. We're not really sure which rules we're supposed to live by. I mean, this morning, if I asked all of you to take out a piece of paper and a pen and to make a list of what you consider to be God's top five rules, we would all have a different list. 
fact, I doubt any of our lists would even agree. I mean, think about this. We got rules from the Bible. All the do's, all the don'ts, all the thou shalt's, the thou shalt nots, right? And then we got rules that our parents gave us. Never, 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 never. Always, 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 always. Always wear clean underwear, guys. Because if you get in an accident on the way home from church and they have to take you to the hospital, you're going to embarrass the whole family if you wore dirty underwear that day. Say, very important, you know. You got to do that. Uh, don't run with scissors. You'll poke you out. You know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, don't date girls who do. So we got all of these, all of these rules, you know, that we have to obey. And then on top of that, we have rules that we learn from organized religion that aren't even in the Bible. You better get that baby baptized as soon as that baby's born. You better go to confession and say Hail Marys. You better go through confirmation. You make sure you sing the doxology at the end of every service. We got all of these rules. And so we have to prioritize them according to what we think, well, what's most important to God, which brings up the question, whose list of rules do we go by? I mean, if we're gonna get into a relationship with, by obeying the rules, whose rules do we go by? For example, maybe a woman that has an abortion, I mean, it is right up there at the top of your list of things that you are pretty sure that God hates. Maybe that's number one on your list of things that you cannot break. But yet at the same time, your gossip or your slander about the woman who has the abortion, so you convince in your mind that's really not a big deal to God. But do you see how we prioritize? And not only do we prioritize, guess what else we do? We ignore the rules we don't like. For example, if, if you have a heart of greed and you want it all for yourself, so you've convinced yourself, you're pretty sure that tithing and giving and living a life of generosity, even though the Bible teaches that, it's really not that important to God, right? Or even though when Jesus said, if you wanna be great, be a servant, you know that. Jesus uh, demonstrated it by washing the disciples' feet and then said, as I've done to you, you do to one another. You serve one another. But see, if, if you're the center of your universe and your, your world just revolves around you, you're pretty sure. So you convinced yourself, you know what? That's for other people, but serving really isn't that important to God. Or if you want to have sex outside of marriage, even though the Bible clearly teaches that God created sex, hello, great idea. Can you imagine that morning when God said, I have got the coolest idea, right? But God, God created sex, but he created it for a man and a woman in the context of a committed marriage relationship. But a lot of you are like, well, God's not really that serious about that rule. See how we, see why we negotiate with God? See how we dummy it down? See how we prioritize? Why is that? It's because, see, if we're not obeying, interested in obeying certain rules, it's easy for us to justify, you know what, I don't think it's really that important to God, or, or that seems so antiquated. I bet if God rewrote the Bible, that wouldn't be a rule. So let's be honest, this rule thing, very, very confusing. And that's why we're gonna learn in this series that if you wanna be like Jesus, it has absolutely nothing to do with following a bunch of rules. It's about a relationship with God that's built on unconditional love. And I'm gonna tell you something. Whenever you interject a rule mindset into a relationship that is built on unconditional love, you immediately cancel out unconditional love. I'm telling you, the two just do not mix. I mean, think about the relationships in your life that are based on how you perform, your performance. Let me ask you a question. How secure are you in those relationships? For example, take your job. Let me tell you something about your job. Maybe you didn't know this. If you don't do your job, you're out. They don't invite you in for your annual review and say, hey, guess what, Mike? You haven't sold a thing in seven years, but we sure like having you around here. We're gonna give you a 14% raise. No, it doesn't work like that. If you don't perform, you are out. Everyone may love you. You may be everyone's best friend. You're the person that everybody wants to go to lunch with. 
But if you don't perform, you're out. And so there's an element of insecurity in that relationship. For some of you, that would describe your marriage. For some of you, your security in your marriage is based on how you perform. It's based on do you meet certain expectations. And when you don't perform or you don't meet those expectations, guess what? You feel, you feel like a loser. You feel alienated. You feel condemned in the relationship. Why is that? It's because that's the nature of performance-oriented relationships. It destroys the relationship by canceling out unconditional love. And since that's how it works in our relationships with each other, we just automatically assume it must work the same way with God. But here's the case. If that's the way it works in a relationship with God, we're in trouble because every one of us, if we're honest, we know in our hearts, we're not making the grade. We know that we're not measuring up. We know that if the key to being in a relationship with God is getting all the rules right all the time, guess what, people? We're all on the outside looking in. But here's the good news about Christianity. The good news is that we have a heavenly father who operates off of a completely different series. And that's why we are going through this uh, off a, a different uh, system. And that's why we're going through this series about taking flight. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some stuff that is foundational when it comes to us being able to be conformed into the very image of Jesus Christ so that we can soar, so that we can fly the way God created us to soar and fly in our relationship with him. So that we can be the people that not only God created us to be, we can be the people that deep down inside we really want to be. Now, we're going to kick it off by looking at Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bible this morning, if you don't, I understand. Uh, We're going to put the verses up on the screen. But this week and next week, we're going to really lay the foundation for this series. This this started out a four-week series. And then I got so excited, I I expanded it to a six-week series. And I finally finished it, and it's an eight-week series. So we're going to be in this a few weeks together. But i got to tell you, I have learned so much and been challenged so much in this series. I can't wait to pass on what God has taught me. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. I love this verse. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. None, zilch, nada, zero. There is no condemnation for those who are really doing their best to obey all of God's rules. That's not what it says, is it? But let's be honest, most of the time, that's how we live our lives. But when Paul wrote this, he wrote there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Period. Do you know what that means? It means that the moment you become a Christian, in other words, the moment you realize that you're separated from God and there's no way you can work and earn your way back into a relationship with God. The minute you realize I need saving, therefore I have a savior. The moment you realize that Jesus Christ came to this earth to be your sin offering, to die on the cross so that your sins could be paid for, so that you could be reconciled and restored back into a relationship with God. That's the gospel. When you realize that three days later, he rose from the dead to verify and validate that he was indeed the son of God who was capable of taking away your sins. And you're like, that's the only way I'm gonna get back into a relationship with God. I'm accepting God's gift of Jesus and salvation. The minute you make that decision, from then on out, understand there is nothing that can come between you and God, not even your sin. Paul says there's no condemnation. You're not condemnable. Let me give you a definition for condemn. To pronounce an unfavorable or adverse judgment on, to express strong disapproval of. Now, why is this important? It's important because, see, many of us feel that when we sin, 
When we blow it, when we screw up, God disapproves of us. He condemns us. He puts us on his naughty list. But verse one tells us that once we become a follower of Jesus Christ, from that point on, God never disapproves of us. God never condemns us. If you are in Christ, you are uncondemnable. Now let's go back to the definition, condemn. To pronounce an unfavorable or adverse judgment on, to express strong disapproval of, to pronounce guilty, now notice this last part, to judge or to pronounce unfit for use or service. Why is that so important? See, this is what I know about every one of us. Whatever campus, wherever you are this weekend, this is what I know about every one of us. Like Mark Twain said, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. And I can guarantee you this, every one of us listening right now, every one of us has something in our lives that we battle. Could be a habit you can't kick. It could be a sin that you absolutely hate and you do everything, you've done everything you can to stop committing that sin, but no matter how much you try, you continue to lust, you continue to lie, you continue, whatever it is, you just can't beat that sin. Now, being that's the case, unless I miss my guess, you probably feel condemned. You probably feel, when it comes to your relationship with God, that you are unfit for use or service. But this is what I want you to understand. If you have ever trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you are as in as Billy Graham, okay? Just so you understand that. Because it's not about what you did. It's not even about what you're doing. It's have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? And right now, some of you are going, well, hang on, Mike, you're on a really slippery slope this week. And Mike, you mean to tell me that if you murder somebody, there's no condemnation? Not if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. You mean, Mike, what if you take your own life? You mean to tell me there's no condemnation from God? Well, let me just say this. It's the most selfish thing you could possibly do. But there's no condemnation, not if you're in Christ Jesus. And see, we believe this kind of. That's why when we sing songs like we sang this weekend, my sin was great, your love was greater. What can separate us now? We love that. More people raise their hand when we get that. My sin was great, your love was greater. What can separate us now? But when we start talking about this, even if we've been in church for years, it's so strange, we get weirded out. Some of you right now are getting ready to have a major coronary. I mean, you're gonna be flopping around on the floor like a fish, but that's okay. We got extra medical team here this weekend, brand new defibrillators. They're just trying, want to try out so bad they can't hardly wait for you to go down, you know? <laughs> but this makes us uncomfortable. See, it's just strange. And the reason we feel so weirded out, think about it this way. See, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man can boast. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by trusting Jesus as our personal savior. But then you know what happens in most of our lives within two hours, we, were, we revert right back to the old system. We revert right back to the old behavior. We're right back trying to follow a bunch of rules because we're convinced that it's our job to please God. It's our job to be in a relationship with God. It's our job to be the person that God wants us to be. But Paul writes this letter to the Christians at Rome and he tells them, listen, if you are in Christ, understand there is no condemnation. In other words, if you are in Christ, sin has lost its power to separate you relationally from your heavenly father. 
And that means that when you sin, he doesn't turn his back on you. That means that when you sin, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't even roll his eyes. You know why? Because you're in. It's unconditional. And Paul explains why in verse 2. And this, this tells you why this series is so important. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of death. Now, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that all of us, we're used to a worldly human philosophy says, you've got to get it right if you're going to be in a relationship with God. You've got to get it right if your life is going to change. We're used to, you got to be good. You got to do good. You got to obey all the rules. You got to meet certain expectations. And that's what Paul refers to in verse two as the law or the system of sin and death. It's cause and effect. You sin, you die. You blow it, you're out. I mean, you look at that girl, she may love you. You look at him, he may love you. You screw up. He'll, he'll kick you to the curb. You know what I'm saying? That's the system that we're used to. So it makes sense that we come to church, we hear all these rules in the Bible, and we rush out of here trying to obey all the rules. The problem is we just can't obey all the rules. And Paul tells us here that the reason we're not condemned when we break the rules and we continue to break the rules it's because God has introduced us to a whole new system. Look what it is in verse two. He's introduced us to a system It's called the law of the spirit who gives life. And last weekend, Donnie did a phenomenal job talking about the topic of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, the role that he plays in our life. But you gotta understand, this new system that God has put in place, it is totally opposite of the system that we're used to. Because in this new system, you're not in based on what you do, and you don't stay in based on what you do. You're in because of what Jesus did for you. See, it is a completely different system. And even though both systems are in operation, this new system that God put in place through Jesus Christ overrides the old system. I've used this illustration before. But let me try to explain it again this way. We're all familiar with the law of gravity. If you didn't do a very good job and you get, your science came hard for you, I was a science minor and I taught science for a while. This is the law of gravity. Okay, that's it. That's the best way I know to explain it. You drop something, it falls. It doesn't hover, it falls. That's the law of gravity. But you know what's interesting? It's 61 years old. I can get on a plane. I can watch all the people get on that plane. I can watch them load up all that luggage, put fuel in the wings. You know what my thought is? There's no way in the world this thing's gonna fly. There is no way in the world this thing's gonna get off the ground. In fact, I did a little research this week. A A38-800 Airbus, fully loaded, weighs 1.2 million pounds. That's 600 tons. So I'm thinking, there's no way this thing should fly. I mean, right, right? There's no way it should fly. But you know what happens? We sit on that plane. They say, fashion your seatbelt. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. <laughs> I'm a thrill seeker. They rev those engines. You get sucked back into your seat and what happens? You take off. Now let me tell you something. I can sit here and drop my Bible a million times. Guess what? It's not one time going to float. It's not going to hover in the air. See, it's because of the law of gravity. But I can get on a plane that weighs 1.2 million pounds. And as long as it's mechanically sound, and as long as there's plenty of fuel, I can fly all day long. Well, wait a minute. Does something happen to the law of gravity? Is it no longer in play? Nope, still working, right? then what's the difference? Why can't a plane stay in the air, but I can't get my Bible to hover here in the air? What's the difference? Well, it's because now there's an overriding system. The overriding system is called the law of aerodynamics. And it's overriding the law of gravity. In the same way, this is what Paul is saying. God says to us, 
You are familiar with the old system. You're familiar with the law of sin and death. You know what that's all about. You spent your entire life operating by that system. It affects how you treat people. It affects how they treat you. But God wants us to understand that Christianity is not a new version of the old system. It's not obeying all the rules. We just happen to have Jesus now. That's not it. Christianity is a whole different thing. And Paul explains why in verse three. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, human beings were trying to pull off this perfection of living out the law. In other words, Paul says it didn't work. The law didn't work because nobody could keep the law. In other words, Paul says that this law, trying to do our best to please God by obeying all the rules, he says it just doesn't work. It is powerless. It's powerless when it comes to getting into a relationship with God, and it's powerless when it comes to walking with God. It's powerless when it comes to our lives being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We can't fly. We can't soar. We can't get off the ground. Why is that? It's because the system of doing our best, the system of trying harder to keep all the rules. Think about this. It is based entirely on our ability to perform. And God says, you've already flunked performance. In fact, if you're a millennial, see, you don't know what an F is. You you never got an F. You got a check or a check minus or a check plus, right? Let me tell you what an F is, millennials. That means forget getting a participation trophy. You're not even getting a ribbon. Okay, that's how much you suck at this religious thing, trying, trying to be in a relationship with God. So God says, listen, you can't perform good enough to please me. You can't perform. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and perform good enough to actually change your life. So here's the principle. What we couldn't do in our effort and strength, God did for us. What we didn't do in our effort and strength, God did for us. I am telling you, that is without a doubt the fundamental building block of Christianity. Now, what did he do? Verse three, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. In other words, we couldn't pull it off. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's a reference to the incarnation, God taking on flesh, coming to this earth to be a sin offering. In other words, what the law couldn't do, God, through Jesus, did. So what does that mean to us? It means that once we're in Christ, Our sin can never separate us from God again. Because now it's overpowered, God's overpowered that cause and effect, that sin and death relationship. Now as we get into this series, you're gonna see both, just like gravity and the law of aerodynamics, they're both still working, right? But God says, listen, in me, in me, this is the only way, in me, it's overcome. In fact, he goes on to say in verse uh, four, what, what, what happened, why it was done. He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Now, let me ask you a question. What was the requirement of the law? Perfection. You had to get it all right all the time. Have you read the Old Testament? Forget the whole Old Testament. Have you just read the big 10, the 10 commandments? It's like, God, I'm just gonna give you 10. Can you just get those right, right? We go down the 10 commandments, we're gonna, ah, commit adultery, hadn't done that. Murdered, coveted uh, my neighbor's wife. <laughs> oh, what's this about disobeying my parents? Oh man, guilty of the whole law. But God comes along and says, once you are in Christ, I am giving you, you can't earn it, 
You can't achieve it. You could never perform enough. Once you are in Christ, I am giving you, I am crediting to your account righteousness. I am crediting to your account perfection. You say, well, Mike, if you would have followed me around this week, I didn't act very righteous. Neither did I. But it's okay because it's the old system. But God says that in Christ, he credits to our lives all the righteousness, all the perfection of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That means that when God looks at you and me, he sees us as righteous as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. He sees me as perfect as he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Think of it this way. Just imagine that you're the quarter and you've accepted God's free gift of salvation. You are in Christ. So now when God looks at you, you know what Jesus says? He's with me. She's with me. And he sees you through his son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for you. And he sees you as righteous, and he sees you as perfect. Now here's the deal. That's our position in Christ because of salvation. That's where we are, perfection and righteous. But understand, our day-to-day experience is down here. And this process of being conformed to the image of Christ is trying to get our experience to match our position of perfection and excellence. That's the journey we're going on. Let me tell you something. It's not going to be completed until we get to heaven. It's a prophecy that's in the process of being fulfilled. When we get to heaven, we'll get there. But on this earth, God, we're going to learn this series how we can begin to raise our experience to meet our position in Christ of perfection and righteousness. But understand, God wants us to operate our lives from the vantage point. We're already perfect. We're already righteous. He doesn't want us to revert back to the old sin. Oh, God is so mad at me. I looked at porn this week. But I had 15 quiet times, and I went to four small groups. So I'm back in. God likes me again. Right? Right? All right, you know what? God is so mad at me because I kicked my neighbor's dog again. I can't stand that dog. But I went to confession and said 17 Hail Marys, and now I'm fine. God, I'm back on God's side. That's not what it's about. When we revert back to that way of thinking, God's like, stop it. Stop it. That's religion. And my son had to die to overcome that system. And through his death, I have given you the gift of righteousness. You are righteous. You are not condemnable. In fact, he says, there's not a thing in the world you could do that would alter my acceptance and love of you. Not a thing. It's kind of like with our own kids. I got two boys. You know, they're not perfect. You know why? Because they're my boys. They're like their daddy. But I'll tell you something, there ain't a thing in the world they could do that would alter how I feel about them. Not a thing. They're always gonna be my son. And that's what Paul is teaching you here. In the same way when God looks at you, I don't care what you've done, there is no separation, there is no condemnation, there is not a sliver of sin that can slide between you and God that could ever alter his love and acceptance of you. Because you didn't get in by being good, And he doesn't love you because you're staying good. He loves you because you were declared righteous when you received his son as your savior. And now in your life, there is no potential for condemnation. Now, let me just say in closing, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior, I got some good news and I got some bad news. The bad news is you are condemned. But in reality, it's not necessarily because of anything you've done. It's because you, like me, we were born. And we were born into a system that says we have to perform. And that's all it takes to be condemned, just just being born. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that this weekend you can be reborn. I mean, you can be taken out of a state of condemnation 
And in an instant, you can be placed into a state of total acceptance by God. In fact, you will be so tight with God, no one could ever be tighter with God than you. But to do that, you have to accept his gift of righteousness. You have to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. You have to accept him as your savior. You accept that his death on the cross paid for all of your sins. That you need a savior. That you need saving. And let me tell you, in case you didn't know, you need saving. You can't save yourself from the day-to-day mundane issues of life. We can't stop speeding, can we? We can't stop biting our nails. I mean, if we can't stop doing those things, what makes us think we could save ourselves for all eternity? You need saving. And when you realize you need saving, you got a savior. He's Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'm telling you, when you accept that gift, God stamps across your life. Righteous. If there's a better offer in life, I want to hear about it. But that's what God holds out to you this weekend. Let's bow our heads together. Let me just say, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, you go to church every week, you think somehow that gets a star by your name, or it impresses God so much that God's like, how in the world can I keep them out of heaven? I mean, they're so cool, they're so good. You're wasting your time. I tell people all the time, when you die and stand before God, he's gonna ask you one simple question, and it's gonna be this. Why should I let you in? And your answer better be, because I trusted your son, Jesus Christ, as my savior. And he paid for my sins so that I could be restored back into a relationship with you. Father, what we've talked about this weekend uh, really is amazing grace and amazing love. And I know that there are some people here right now who are having a hard time believing all this. And I think it's hard for them to believe because of the way that it works in our relationships and the way we've been treated by people because of our lives and and maybe things that have happened in our past. But Father, I pray that your spirit will work in the lives of people here so that they can embrace this. And I pray for the person who is listening right now who's not a Christian. And the reason maybe they're not a Christian is because they can't even imagine being accepted and loved this way unconditionally by you. May what we've heard this weekend, may it change their hearts. May it change their minds. Father, thank you for loving us the way you love us. And I pray that as we we go through this series, that as Christians, we'll learn how to approach you boldly, the way that you have paved for us to approach you. And may our lives be transformed as you, along with us, as we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks, as we are conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your name, amen.